All right, so the handout sheets are on the counter back there. The sign-in sheet is over there as well. If you haven't signed in, if you would at some point, uh, so we have a record of who was here. And uh, does anybody need one of the handouts? All right, very good. Uh, then, uh, then we will pray. Um, I'm using Psalm 119. I'm going to continue to use Psalm 119 for our opening prayer. And um, what you'll notice is I'm not saying exactly word for word. I'm using this as a guide uh, to help us to pray. Uh, and uh, um, I think that that's a good exercise for us. So we pray. Lord God, how can we keep our way pure? We know that it's by guarding our way according to your word. And so, Lord, we seek you with our whole heart. So we ask that you would not let us wander from your commandments. We have stored up your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Because you are blessed, O oh Lord. And we ask that you would teach us your statutes. Help us to declare all the rules of your mouth with our lips. And help us to delight in the way of your testimonies as much as we would in, in, in the greatest riches of this life. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us to meditate on your precepts and to fix our eyes on your ways. We ask that you would help us to delight in your statutes and to not forget your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, one of the things I want to make really clear about how I am going to handle this class is we are going to take our time. Um, I always feel a little bit of pressure to get through stuff. Um, I, I, I want to accomplish, I want to be able to look at the end of the day and see all the boxes that were checked off and, and, and all that good stuff. Um, welcome, welcome. There are handouts on the pass-through over there, and uh, the sign-in sheet, sign sheet is over there as well. Um, but, uh, I, well, some of you know that some years ago, um, I went out on a cold morning with a bunch of my friends to go for a run, and I hit a very slick patch of ice and went down hard and smacked the back of my head on the ground. The guys I were running with said it sounded like a melon being thrown in the air and hitting the ground. And, uh... I drove myself home, which I should not have done. Um, if you ever have a head injury, don't drive yourself home. Um, and uh, um, my cognitive ability just went down. I mean, I could hardly speak within the next 45 minutes to an hour. Um, just really struggled to put ideas together and uh, <laughs> went to the hospital and uh, went to the emergency room and I will never go to that emergency room again uh, because they basically said, oh, just get a good night's sleep, you're fine tomorrow. <laughs> and those of you who have been here a while, you know I was not fine tomorrow. Um, I, I did come in, it, it was the Saturday before Palm Sunday, and I preached, and then I went and I hid in my office um, with the lights out, and, uh, and then I preached the next service. Um, driving in, I, I like had a panic attack. It was, it was, it's unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. And one of the lingering effects of that injury is I don't read like I used to. I used to be able to really just zip through things and 
and have a very high level of, of comprehension and just read it really fast, done. And these days I find uh, that I have to read things a, a couple of times before it starts to sit in. Um, some of that might be my age as well, um, but, uh, but I noticed it not too long after uh, I got that injury. And um, I remember talking about this with my doctoral advisor, kind of lamenting, and he said, oh, Eric, you've been given a gift. I'm like, you jerk. <laughs> um, but as I think about what he told me that day, um, uh, I do kind of, I have begun to see it as a, as a gift. Uh, because it has forced me to slow down in the things that I read and read things over a couple of times, um, which is very much similar to how people uh, talk about meditation in the scriptures. And it's very similar to uh, the way that the Psalms are written, where you take an idea and you repeat it a couple of times, you know, to, to get it across. And, um, and so I've become more comfortable with, you know, it just takes a little bit longer. And then as I was doing the prep work for this, one of the things that, uh, that struck me is that, you know, well, actually going into, into teaching on Romans, one of the things that I was concerned about is how long is this going to take? Because I know I have other responsibilities um, and I only have like these windows because sometimes I go and I teach the high school, sometimes I go and I teach, you know, the 611 class, the confirmation class, and, you know, I, I don't like to leave things just kind of dangling. And, um, and in my research, I learned that, uh, that Luther taught on the book of Romans over three years. Not all in a row, because he had other courses that he was teaching in that time. You know, so he taught a section of it, and then he had to move on to something else, but then he came back to it. And uh, Luther was a lot smarter than I am. Um, and uh, um, he had a lot more to say. In fact, um, these are these are the, the typewritten um, copies of his uh, of his lectures on Romans. And uh, uh, you know, so he would have a lot, lot, lot more to say about this than I would. Um, but uh, uh, it, it strikes me that if it took Luther three years, and it takes us, I don't know. We'll see. Um, that's probably okay. Not that I want to dawdle, not that I think that everything is going to go super, super slow, but, um, but I do intend to move slowly, or as my, my, my grandma used to say, to make haste slowly. But we'll move with purpose, but um, we'll also just kind of let the, see where the Spirit leads the conversation. Um, and so, for those of you who have had other courses with me, you know that um, I will often get to the end of the, uh, the class, and if I'm not done, congratulations, you can take that and study it. That's one of, that's one of my maybe bad attitudes about adult education. You're adults. You're responsible for yourselves. You'll get out of it what you want. But I'm not going to do that with Romans. I want to really make sure that we take the time to, uh, to hit everything and to have the, the, the time in, in, the, in the session to be able to go through everything. So if I don't finish the sheet that's in front of you today, 
bring it back next week. Um, and uh, we will continue where we left off. Any questions before I move on from there? All right. So Romans chapter 1, verse 1. Um, I encourage you to have a Bible with you. Um, I don't care what translation you use. Uh, please use one that you are comfortable with. If you need a recommendation for a translation of the Bible, I am more than glad to speak with you about that um, and uh, to recommend some different formats of Bibles uh, that are out there that I find to be particularly useful. Um, but uh, on the whole, I will probably read, um, I will read either from the English Standard Version, that's the one that we use in church, uh, and, or um, I will translate it uh, directly from the original. And so we'll start out Romans 1, verse 1, and now we're going to go super slow. Because there's a lot that I think needs to be parsed out just in these first words. Paul, what does your translation describe him as? A servant. Did anybody say slave? Fair enough. The original says a slave. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus. Anybody find that odd? No. Okay. Why not? Well, because he uh, he is a slave to Christ. He's given his whole life and being in this. In fact, what a slave okay. can do. So okay. I don't think it's a bad use of the word. Oh, I don't think it's a bad use of the word either. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I think that that sounds weird in our modern ears. Yeah, Amy. Are purchased. Yeah. I was just going to say, plus they are slaves to God instead of their spirit. So they do what they wish. You know, I do not know why they are. You know. But it also, to me, and I read that, it's like he's, Paul's just giving over your whole self to God. He's just deciding to be a follower. Yeah. Now, why would, why would we change that in our English translations from slave to servant? Nothing to compare with, really. Not here. Oh, I think we do have something to compare with. No? Oh, yeah. dominant imagery regarding slavery here in the United States is what? Oppression. It's the Civil War. Yeah. 
And the form of slavery that was practiced here in the Americas was particularly cruel and violent and horrible. Now, I think that when we read through the scriptures, the idea of a person owning another person, it's, it's outside of God's plan for humanity. However, when we deal with a broken world, sometimes you, know, you might find yourself in a situation that being a slave might be better than just being on your own. Particularly if there's a master who is particularly kind and just and fair. And, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and so I think that we struggle, particularly as Americans, particularly uh, as people who uh, our, our, whole, our, our whole upbringing is rooted in this idea of um, rugged individualism. You know, when you think of the stories that we were told when we were kids, you know, the TV shows, and, and you know, it, it's all about, you know, I'm going to overcome, I'm going to triumph, and the whole idea of being beholden to someone else, it's really an uncomfortable thought to us here as Americans. And I think that a conscious choice has been made to soften this type of language. And I think we lose something because of it. Paul does not say that he is a servant. He says, I am a slave to Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting is that he will talk about his relationship to other people, and he will say that I am a servant of the Gentiles. I'm a servant of the people out there who need to hear the gospel, but I am a slave when it comes to Jesus. And I think he's dealing with a reality that Jesus introduces to us in um, John chapter 8, verse 34. So Jesus is talking to the Jewish people at this time. He's talking to whatever crowds were there. And he tells them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So, anybody here has never been a slave? Because Jesus would say that if we practice sin, you are enslaved. Yes? It's interesting that they would use the word of also instead of to, mm -hmm. which implies Jesus is asking, from my perspective anyway, slave of means Jesus paid my decision. I did not. To implies I'm, I don't know who did it, it's my imagination. I think of and to are two different meanings. Yeah, um, the, the way that this really quickly here just to be double sure here um, yeah what, what you have here is a possessive you know so when it says a slave of Jesus Christ you could also just translate it as Paul Jesus Christ's slave okay it's, it's a straight possessive uh, that, that's in the, uh, the text but, but that connection is important and, uh, and, and there is a claiming that is part of this and I think that we have this false impression that um, I think we have a false impression that we're free. We love freedom, don't we? 
as Americans. We talk about free choice, and, and, um, and this is, this is uh, invaded the way that we talk about how we come to faith. I made a decision to follow Christ. You know, I do think that we make decisions once you know, we have faith and the Holy Spirit is in us and working in us and making us alive in Christ. And, and so there, there are decisions that are made where our spirit, having been made alive in Christ, begins to cooperate with him. But Ephesians 2 says you are dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people don't do a lot of choosing. And I think Paul is dealing with a reality here that recognizes that you will be a slave to something. You could be a slave to sin and its destructive forces and destructive powers, or you will be a slave to Jesus, who will love you, give you life, and truly set you free in that slavery in a way that never could. I, I think that um, we have this image in our minds that as we go through life, we are um, we're kind of free to choose to sin or not to sin. And the image that the Bible gives us is that when you're born, the only thing that you're actually free to do is sin. Think back to Genesis 3, verse 16, when God confronts Adam and Eve in the garden. And he pronounces the curses on them, right? And he starts with the serpent. You know, cursed are you above all the livestock of the world. From now on, you're going to go around in your belly. You're going to eat dust. And he says, I will put enmity. That's how we usually translate the word uh, from the Hebrew um, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, um, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. What's enmity? Trouble. Trouble. What'd you say? Enemies. He will make you enemies. Uh, another good way to translate it is I will put animosity between you and the woman. If God has to put animosity or enmity between the woman and the serpent, the woman standing for all of us, what does that indicate that they are beforehand? It indicates that they are allies. think that sometimes we don't see how devastating sin is. And I think this image of slavery is intended to draw that out. That it shows it, how great this salvation is. I was a slave in sin and headed only to death. But now, Paul says, I am a slave to Jesus Christ. You know, in Psalm 68, verse 18, um, the psalmist says, draw near to my soul, redeem me, ransom me because of my enemies. What does it mean to redeem something? To buy it back. When you pay a ransom, you take something that was yours 
and you give money or some other valuable thing to get it back. That's the picture that Jesus has purchased us. And we talk about this in, in, our, in our confessions. We talk about it in the Apostles' Creed. Um, if, if you memorized the explanation to the second article of the Apostles' Creed when you were in confirmation, this will sound familiar. You know, I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten from the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord, who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person, purchased and won me from all sins, from death, and from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood and with his innocent sufferings and death, that I might be his own, I might belong to him, and live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, just as he has risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity. This is most certainly true. You hear the language there of purchasing and service and belonging. Not in the sense of I've attached myself, but in the sense that he said, you belong to me. What does it mean for Jesus to be Lord? Have you thought about this? He's, yeah, he's the rightful ruler. He's the rightful owner. And, you know, and thanks be to God that he comes not as a tyrant because some masters, some slave masters are tyrants, but as one who loves and tends and cares and provides. How does Paul's slavery to Jesus fit with the promise that we will be free in him? Oh, I'm sorry. the authority to speak into it. Since, I don't know, since the 1940s, it's lost and condemned person. 
Um, and uh, and I, I talked with him about that. And he's like, I like creature too. But there is something definitely about the idea of recognizing ourselves as having been created that is important and tying us um, to the rest of creation. You know, and, uh, and then finding personhood in Christ. Yeah. In, oh, in our Creator. Yeah, it's a dang, it's it's a tricky business uh, updating languages. Um, language changes. That's that's all there is to it. Um, you know, I think back to when we uh, got the uh, the hymnals in the '70s and '80s, um, and they brought the Apostles' Creed into a little bit more modern language. You know, we used to talk about the quick and the dead. You know, and I remember as a kid thinking, what does being fast have to do with it? And, and part of me now looks at that and says, all that required is a little bit of education to understand that. But at the same time, living in dead is probably a, uh, a clearer communication than saying the quick and the dead these days. And, and so sometimes I think there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. But other times I, I feel a, a loss in that. Um, the other place that I, I really grab onto it in the catechism is in the explanation to the Eighth Commandment. Um, do not bear false witness against your neighbors. We should fear and love God so that we do not tell lies or slander our neighbors but defend and speak well of him. And the new translation is explain everything in the kindest way. Okay. The old one that I learned was put the best construction on everything. That's a poetry to it. You know, and um, I don't know, maybe we'll recapture some of the poetry. Times are changing. Oh, all the commandments do. Yeah, but yeah. I'm oh, to learn and to understand the language. I'm supposed to just get everything correct in my head. That's what it means. Yeah. So to look at it to, get, to your benefit, but to be as kind as I possibly can. Yeah. To assume that you're meaning it well. Yeah. So back to Romans 1. You've got me through five words or something? Yeah. Um, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. What's an apostle? An ambassador. That's a good parallel. Absolutely. The word apostle itself literally means one who is sent. And the idea is that these apostles are people who were sent on behalf of someone else. They were sent on behalf of Jesus. And therefore, in that role, they speak authoritatively uh, on Jesus' behalf. When Paul writes this letter and he grabs hold of that title of apostle, um, he is 
claiming a different level of, as Sharon said, authority than, um, you know, if I were writing this or if you were writing this. Um, so here, here's an image uh, that Jesus used when he was talking about his apostles. He's in a conflict with the Pharisees. This is one of those times where he's saying, woe to you Pharisees, you're, you're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You know, you, you, you think you're all righteous, but in, inside you're full of dead men's bones. And, and he ends it up saying, therefore I will send you prophets and wise men and scribes. He's talking about the 12 that are with him. Some of whom you will kill and crucify. And some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. The apostles are the modern version of the prophets. Yes? All of the 12, um, except for Judas, because he you know, kind of you know, ended it before he could get the opportunity, um, all of them bore the title apostle and embraced it. Who, who gave them that title? Jesus gave them that title. Jesus calls them to be his apostles and uh, to be the ones that he sends to represent him. And... Uh, um, and so there, there's only one other person that bears that title in, in, in this sense, um, you know, and that is uh, Matthias. Um, and uh, it's interesting, if you look at Acts chapter 1, you know, so here they are, the, the, the disciples are gathered together, and they realize, you know, Jesus called 12 apostles, and, uh, you know, the seat that Judas has vacated needs to be filled. Well, what should we do? Well, we should fill it. God has chosen somebody to fill this role. What kind of person do we want to fill the role? Well, let's, let's think about this. The apostles are all people who have been involved with Jesus' life ever since he was baptized and all across his earthly ministry. So we're going to look for somebody who fits those uh, criteria. Somebody who was there from the time that Jesus was baptized all the way to the time that he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. And of all the people that were gathered there, they found two. And they prayed about it. And they cast lots. There's a decision-making process for you. You know, did, when you guys were doing the call committee stuff, did you ever consider just casting lots? And it came out snake eyes. <laughs> and the lot fell to Matthias. This actually fits very nicely with how um, they made decisions in the Old Testament. Um, part of the uh, going to the priest, and they would pray, and you know, it, it was it was part of their piety. It was part of how they they worshipped. And um, you know, every fall of the dice belongs to the Lord. And, uh, and so 
The lot fell to Matthias, and he was numbered among the apostles. Interestingly, not too much later, um, Jesus knocks Paul, or Saul, off of a horse and says, hey, guess what? You're going to be an, an apostle. Even though he wasn't part of that whole line. And some people have then said that the early church got it wrong. They should not have appointed um, Matthias to be an apostle. You know, that God had already chosen Saul for that job, and they just needed to wait on the Lord. I'm not actually sure that they're right about that. I think that uh, the apostles show us a, a good and orderly sense of transition. I mean, they prayed about this. They um, you know, were working within the, the, the guidance of the Spirit. I think that the number of apostles was supposed to be greater than they thought it was. Yeah. is a different kind of apostle. He he's learned in the scriptures in a way that the others were not. So they had three years to walk with Jesus. He had a lifetime to steep himself in, in, in the Bible, in what we would call the Old Testament. And uh, um, I think I've got this quote in here later. Yeah. I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. Right. Yeah. He was not a disciple. He was a disciple of the law and who had to then experience the gospel. Yeah, and that's when, when we say that, the, you know, we're, we're reading Mark right now in church, right? And, and last week we talked about the kingdom of, of God has come. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the gospel. Saul had no sense of the gospel. God's mercy and forgiveness. And when he, Jesus knocks him off of the horse and blinds him and sends Ananias to him to reveal the gospel to him, it radically changes everything for him. And he is sent in, in that mode as one who has been converted to Christ to speak to the Gentiles, to the nations, to people who have no concept of either the law or the gospel. And now he's uniquely positioned to be able to speak that to these people. But other people, other apostles spoke to the, um, the Gentiles too. You know, Peter spoke to Cornelius. Um, there's a very strong tradition that Peter was preaching in Rome. Um, one of my favorites is Thomas. And the story is that he makes it all the way to the, uh, the far side of India, preaching the gospel. You know, so, um, but he has, he has a special kind of, of mission uh, as, a, as a witness about the risen Christ in a different way. And this, this being sent... Um, we, we have their commission recorded for us in uh, John chapter 20 when Jesus, the risen Christ, 
Easter evening, shows up in the room where they are hiding with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. And it says that he stood there among them, said, peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And, and the disciples, they're glad because they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them, peace be with you as the Father has sent me. In other words, he has sent me as this authoritative, you know, to proclaim the kingdom of God has come. I am sending you. And, and that's their commission. And when, when you look at this, it's pre-COVID because he breathed on them and, and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. And this is the heart, the core of the ministry of the apostles is to proclaim forgiveness in Jesus' name. To point to the risen Christ as the source of forgiveness and reconciliation to God. And, and that's exactly what Paul does. So the key work of an apostle is, is really proclaiming the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. How is that different than a pastor? It's different. that I have been given tend to come from the apostles. They might be Jesus' words, but even the Gospels, two of them are written by apostles, right? Matthew and John. Mark and Luke were connected to apostles. Mark traveled with, well, he traveled with Paul until Paul got sick of him. And, uh, and, and he started traveling with Peter. And so he writes his gospel under the auspices of Peter. Luke traveled with Paul. And he writes his gospel connected to, to Paul. But ultimately, the, the, the words, they, they, they come from these apostles who are delivering them down. Jesus entrusted himself to his apostles to deliver that to us. And then we take those words from him that they deliver to us in order to preach and to teach. And we are held to that. They're held to the original. And through the Spirit, we've been given a gift where they deliver that message to us. So a pastor, uh, I'm not saying that pastors aren't important. I like to think that what I do is important. Um, but uh, we'll all have to disagree. Um. <laughs> but, but don't you think people overemphasize the, the uniqueness of the dignity of the pastor? <coughs> because it seems to me that when Jesus was preaching and teaching for these three years, there were lots of little people, I'll use that I think there were hundreds of people out there being, I'll call little tiny apostles, and maybe 
Yeah, there is that sense that we are there is that sense that we are all sent to carry the gospel. You know, and so if if apostle means one who is sent, well, we're all sent. Right. Um, you know, within our vocations to different aspects of life, where we get to represent Jesus. But that's different than you know this was their this was their vocation. You know, this is the the mission and the purpose that God gave them for their life is to be His witnesses. Uh, in this world and to speak authoritatively. So I think a good example of this is Apollos. When you read through the book of Acts, there was a Jewish man by the name of Apollos. Um, interesting that he would be named after a Greek god. Um, and uh, he, he's out there, he, he's proclaiming the gospel, but he doesn't quite have it right. And Priscilla and Aquila, who were partners with Paul in his ministry, hear him and they're like, this is pretty good, but it's not quite there. And they sit him down and they share with him what Paul is teaching. You know, and they're, they're bringing it back to, you know, that's the plumb line, so to speak. Paul has a similar situation in, in his uh, missionary journeys as he goes around. You know, he finds places where people have experienced the, the baptism of John, but they haven't experienced the baptism of Jesus. They believe in Jesus, but they haven't been baptized into Christ. They've just received this baptism of repentance. Well, you need to be baptized. He becomes the plumb line and says, okay, you know, you, you got some of this, but let's bring the rest of it along so that we got it right. And that's where the apostles are different. When I speak from the pulpit, you know, I speak authoritatively. When I say, you know, your sins are forgiven, I mean it. But it isn't because of me that I can say that. It's because of Jesus. And it's because this has been handed down through the apostles for me to give to you. So when I preach, anything and everything that I say in there, you know, it needs to be held captive to the word of God, which is delivered to us by the prophets the apostles, and everything has to be tested against them. And if what I say in there disagrees with that, I'm the one that's wrong. And, that, that's, and that's a different level of authority. Yes? Can't we as ordinary Christians have the title of disciple? Yes. Yeah. A disciple is a student, a follower. Well, the, the apostles were well, disciples. We are Romans, the Bible means to capture people who dedicate their things to the word of God. So. Yeah, but remember that Jesus called 12 to be his disciples, but those weren't the only people that were listening to him. You know, you can speak of the larger group as Jesus' disciples, as followers, but there was a special relationship with these ones. And even within that group, there was a special relationship with three of them. Peter, James, and John. Yeah. The best part of the Samson's story is that Jesus forgave them. He didn't scold them and say, where were you when I was dying on the cross? Yeah. And, and not only that, but he gives them the authority to forgive sins in his name. Which brings us to the next part here where it says he, that he was set apart for the gospel of God. And what's the gospel? 
heard, I heard good news. Yeah, so the gospel is the good news that comes to us, I think I heard somebody else say the word, it comes to us in the word um, about God's mercy, his grace, and his forgiveness. Uh, so we just had this reading, I think it was last week, uh, from Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The good news, the gospel, is that God has kept his promises. He has sent the one who will crush the serpent's head. He has sent the one who will reign on David's throne forever. He has sent the one who, um, he promised Abraham that he would bless all the world through his seed. The time has come. He's here. Emmanuel is standing right there. God has kept his promises. He's fulfilling his prophecies. Believe it. He's bringing this good news of forgiveness and salvation. How do I respond to that? I repent and I believe. And this gospel is all about the, 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 the hope and the life and the salvation that Jesus has won for us. And he's saying, that's why I have come. And Paul is saying, that's my job. To make sure that other people hear this good news of God's love rather than his, his wrath and judgment. Although, it, it, you can't separate them. I mean, you have to speak about both. Which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So we've mentioned a couple of these uh, um, promises that were made beforehand. I talked about the one from Genesis, um, you know, the one that will crush the serpent's head, another one from Genesis that all nations will be blessed through Abraham's seed, um, the promise of Emmanuel, um, the promise uh, of one who will reign on David's throne forever. Uh, and there are all kinds of, of promises about God bringing his salvation to his people. One of my favorites in the book of Ezekiel, he, he talks about heart surgery. He says, um, I'm going to replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. This whole image of being made alive anew. You know, all these promises... And there's a reality here that when we look at the scriptures, this talk about Old Testament, New Testament, it's kind of unfortunate. I'm not saying that I'm going to be able to get rid of it. But it is kind of unfortunate because it's really one, you know, one document when it all comes together, even though it's a whole bunch of books, uh, 66 books. Yeah. Oh, I thought you wanted to say something. Okay. Okay. Um, but when we read these scriptures, whether it is what we would call the Old Testament or the New Testament, it is about Jesus. So in John chapter 5, Jesus is talking with, with some Pharisees again. He says, you people, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. It's in them, uh, it's them that bear witness about me. 
yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He's literally saying to them, you read the Bible all the time, but you've missed the point because I am the point. All of it points to me. And so the key to understanding the scriptures is Jesus. Whether we're reading the Old Testament, or whether we're reading the Gospels, or whether we're reading the book of Romans. That ultimately, all of this is pointing us to Jesus. And what is the proof that God gave uh, that God gives that Jesus is his son, and therefore that the point is all about him? What does the text say? <laughs> That's a different point. In this text, what does Paul point to? But you are right, Ellen. What did God do? Yes, he raised him from the dead. He says, that's, that's the proof that this is the one that you're supposed to believe in. This is the proof that he is the promised Savior. God raised him from the dead. Unique in all of history. So when we share our faith, what role does Jesus' resurrection play in our witness? is, but I wonder how often we talk about it. Because I think sometimes we talk about how my life is better now that I believe in Jesus, which I'm not saying that's wrong. Although, I'm not sure Paul, well, Paul would say that his life is better, but he would not say it's easier. resurrection not just for people but for the whole of creation that all things will be made new when you look at when you look at the bible it begins with creation and by the time you're done you're in a whole new creation in the book of revelation So Jesus becomes the one man who his death brings life. His resurrection 
bring us life, is obedience. So, um, in Romans 1, verse 7, oh, see all these passages from Acts? These are all times in the book of Acts that the apostles are testifying about who Jesus is. Talking about him as the one who has risen from the dead. I, I'm not saying it's all the times. There may be other times. I just did a quick, you know, flipping through the pages type of thing. And uh, um, it comes up a lot. Including in Peter's Pentecost sermon. And it's really kind of the main theme. It's not, it's not you know, you'll have your best life now. Uh, it's, it's not, um, you know, he brings, he brings a sense of morality and order to my life. It's, he's the one who's risen from the dead. And they keep coming back to that. And it's an idea that was rejected. Um, one of the citations here is when Paul is in Athens, and he's telling them about an unknown God. Everybody's interested. Oh, oh, this is fascinating. This is great. And he says, and God has shown him to be the one that he has chosen by raising him from the dead. And they're all like, ridiculous. But that's the message that we've been given. A God who comes in human flesh to die and to rise. And that needs to come up in, in our witness. It needs to come up in how we share our faith. You know, it's what the early church did. We're not trying to sell a product. We're proclaiming a Savior has come. The kingdom of God has come, whether you want to recognize it or not. Yeah, Lori. Yes, 1 Corinthians 15. We're still in our trespasses if, if Christ has not been raised. No, there is no hope. And so, um, wrap it up here with Romans 1, verse 7. Uh, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, uh, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So, he wants to point out to them very clearly, they are people who are loved by God. They are called to be saints. Um, that word saints is, uh, it, it literally means holy ones, people who are holy. And I think that, you know, now we're starting to wonder, how does somebody become a saint? How does somebody become holy? And there is this idea that I think is very dominant in people that says the way we become holy is through our performance. And he's going to show a different kind of holiness. A holiness that is given, that is placed upon us. And he greets them. He says, you know, grace to you. Now, th th there was nothing weird about this in the way that Paul wrote this. Uh, it was very normal at the time to write um, uh, the introductory part of your letter with the greeting, charis. Um, you know, it literally could be translated as hail. Um, uh, in fact, this is the word that the angels spoke to Mary when she uh, found out that she was going to have a baby, name him Jesus. Um, it was very normal greeting in letters at the time, but it takes a different meaning in the way that Paul's, Paul uses it. Because he, he doesn't just say, you know, charis. He always connects it with other words, like peace or mercy. And, and, and so 
we begin to understand that he's, he's not just saying, hey there. He's actually saying grace and peace to you. That he is speaking these things upon his readers. And then he speaks of God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're starting to see, uh, he's making some divisions, he's making some separations and distinctions here. When he speaks of God as Father, we need to recognize that it's not the first time somebody has spoken of a God as a Father. The Greek and the Romans, um, in their pantheon, I mean, they mirror each other. It's the same gods, but different names, right? Um, Zeus in the Greek and Jupiter in the Roman uh, pantheon. He's called father. He's, he's the father of the gods. In, in fact, he's kind of biologically the father of some of them, um, you know, in, in the way that the stories are, are told. But when you read about these Greek gods, particularly Zeus, have you read the Greek myths? He's a terrible... I, well, I don't want to call him a person because he's not, but, you know, he's a terrible god. He's capricious, he's cruel, he's lustful. You know, he does whatever he wants. He's cheating on his wife left and right and center and just, you know, it's awful. And he, now Paul is placing God as father. And he's making a distinction here that the God of Scripture is different than this God that they call father. And Lord... When he calls Jesus Lord, the Greek word for Lord is kurios. Uh, we still use this in the liturgy, the, the, the kyrie, that's where we get it, you know, um, kyrie eleison, Lord have mercy, literal translation. So this is the title that was used for rulers, for masters, um, and for gods, like Zeus, uh, or Lord Poseidon, or Lord Apollo. And reading the Greek and Romans myth, we find that, that these gods, they're often just like their father, Zeus. Cruel, self-centered, and fickle. And so he's making a contrast of God versus God. Father versus father. Lord versus Lord. And he is going to get into, you know, how do we worship this God? Who is he? What's he about? All right, need to wrap up. Uh, homework, again, freedom, you know, you're adults. <clears throat> if you read Romans, I would encourage you to reread uh, chapter one for next week. We'll, you know, we'll be in this for a little while. Or a different thing you might do, if you've got, you know, a Bible app on your phone or um, a, a website that you can go to, like Bible Gateway, uh, you could actually listen to it, which might be an interesting experience to just listen um, another thing you might do uh, is you could look up the passages from Acts in which the apostles proclaimed Jesus' resurrection as part of their witness. You know, we got some questions there for you to think about. Uh, have a conversation again with somebody, something that you learned, something that you remembered, something that you found important that was part of our conversation here. And again, if you felt that this was worth your time, tell somebody about it. Share it. Uh, the post will go out on social media later. Um, and uh, um, you know, that's another thing you can do. You can just like, share, and uh, see what happens. 
All right. Go with God's peace and in his spirit. 